Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, This is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants the prophets overtake your ancestors? So the people repented and said, As the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray now that your word would reverberate in open ears and penetrate tender hearts by the power of your spirit. Help us to see our sin and the glory of your Son. And give us the power to turn from our evil ways and deeds and turn to you in faith and repentance. Give me clarity as I speak, and may your sheep hear your voice and believe it for their everlasting joy. Amen. Conversions of all kinds are commonplace in our world today. Alcoholics turn from drunkenness to sobriety. Westerners, afflicted with boredom, renounce their way of life and turn to Eastern gurus to find meaning. One person joins a cult and closes a door on his prior way of life. Another looks for the power latent within and turns away from institutional religion. More frequently headlined in Christian press today are deconversions, sometimes called deconstructions. Former professing Christians turn away from the faith that they once believed, they once proclaimed, the church they once knew, and oftentimes these, these deconversions are precipitated by a crisis event. Maybe it's a pastor who had a moral failing, or parents who committed adultery and divorce, or a close friend who turned away first and persuaded them to come along for the journey. Or perhaps it is the tragic experience of abuse at the hands of those entrusted to love and care for them, body and soul. Still, sometimes there is no crisis moment, but simply the love of the world and the desires of the flesh that lure someone away. But whatever the cause, the result is changed behaviors, changed beliefs, a clear and decisive turn away from the word of God and the gospel of God and the son of God and a turn to something else. It could be New Age mysticism, lavish hedonism, or even full-blown skepticism. Well, this propensity to turn away from the Lord has marked us ever since our first parents did the same thing in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve turned away from God's word. They believed the lies of the serpent. And in fact, as we read the Bible story, we see time and time again that we ourselves are prone to wander and go our own way. Like our first parents, we have turned from the Lord and incurred his anger. And as the Lord turned Adam and Eve away from his presence, 
So the Lord must turn away from us because of our sin. And we see this dynamic at work even in our passage this morning. Zechariah was a prophet ministering to the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. And through Zechariah, God was calling his people back to a covenant relationship with him, a relationship marked by loyal love, faith, obedience, and trust. Israel's ancestors had turned from loyalty to the Lord. They hedged their bets with false gods, and their lives had been filled with injustice. And even though God sent multiple prophets to call them back to himself, they refused to repent. And so the Lord exiled that generation. But God had not turned away from his people forever. By his mercy, he had brought a new generation back to Jerusalem. And he had raised up a new prophet. And so Zechariah called the people to learn from the sins of their fathers and to break away from a bad past into a blessed future. And so he calls them to return to the Lord. And the Lord speaks to us through Zechariah today. Our ways and our deeds are evil. And yet, rather than immediately turn against us in anger, the Lord graciously calls us to turn to him for mercy. And so we must repent. We must listen to his word and return to the Lord. And if we return, God promises he will return to us. And that's the big idea that I want us to believe today. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord, and the Lord will turn to you. Or to say it negatively, if you don't turn, the Lord will turn against you. But how would Zechariah teach us to return to the Lord? What does it mean to repent? That's what I want us to see this morning. So if you're not there already, turn to Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. And I want us to turn our attention to four matters of repentance. And if you embrace these four matters from God's word, the Lord will turn your life around for his glory. We'll consider the message of repentance, or who should repent, the motives of repentance, why should I repent, the manner of repentance, how do I repent, and the moment of repentance, when should I repent. First, the message of repentance. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of Armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. And I will return to you, says the Lord of Armies. Now Darius was the Persian king ruling at this time. And two kings earlier, Cyrus decreed that the exiled Jews in Babylon could return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. That was in 536 B.C. Don't have to worry, there's not going to be a test about this. However, some adversaries rose up to oppose the rebuilding and they discouraged the people and they frustrated their efforts and even wrote false accusations against them and the temple building came to a standstill and that lasted about 15 years. You can read about this in Ezra chapter 4. But in 520 BC, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah began to prophesy to the Jews to encourage them and both men called the people to repent. Fifteen years had passed, and the temple, the place where the Lord's presence dwelt in the Old Covenant, it remained unfinished. And so Haggai and Zechariah called Israel to put God first, to get on with building the temple. See, here's the thing. The fundamental problem 
that led to the exile, which is sin, it still persisted. The people were back in the land, but they still had the same heart issue. God had gotten the people out of Babylon, but he had not yet gotten Babylon out of the people. And so the book of Zechariah addresses that problem. Now, Zechariah, we see here, comes from a family of prophets. Right? He's a third generation. His name means Yahweh remembers. And in verse 3, we see the heart of his message. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. This is a sovereign imperative. Three times in this verse, five times in our passage, 53 times in the book, we see this title, Lord Sabaoth, or Lord of Armies. So the Lord is the commander-in-chief, right? He's the five-star general. This is no mere suggestion. This is no self-help advice to improve our lives. It's a command invested with the authority and the majesty of the sovereign Lord of all. And yet it's also a sweet invitation. From this verse, we might be tempted to conclude that God does not move toward us unless we first move toward him. That we have to take the first step. But this text doesn't allow us to, to conclude that. Because we, we never would have thought of turning to God in repentance had the Lord not graciously called us first back to him. He drums the idea into us, and then we return. He takes the initiative to call us back into a renewed relationship with him. And Jesus ful fulfilled this, seeing how no redeemer could be found in Adam's helpless race the Son of God became a human, like us, that he might save us. And Jesus began his ministry by declaring, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And the apostles made repentance the bedrock of their preaching. God exalted this man, Jesus, to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And the invitation applies to all people. Do you think you're too wicked? to be restored to God? Do you think that he couldn't possibly want you to turn back to him? The Lord corrects our thinking. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? So the Lord wants you. He wants you back if you've wandered away from him. And so we ought not stay away when the Lord bids us to come. And what a comforting thought it is that even when mired in our sin, the Lord tells us his grace is sufficient for us. And so return to him today. Enjoy him in the fullness of his grace. Church, this message of repentance has been entrusted to us. The Apostle Paul wrote, We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this means we need to get our message right. I think when it comes to our understanding of the gospel, the evangelical church tends to be comfortable talking about faith, but it is a little less clear when talking about repentance. I hear well-meaning brothers and sisters say things like, you know, having Jesus in your life would make things so much better. It's not that your life is so bad now, but it would be just so much better with Jesus. So I encourage you to go and pray and ask Jesus to come into your life and see what happens. Now, can God respond graciously to a prayer like that? Yes, I believe he does. But where that becomes dangerous is when someone assumes 
that by praying a prayer like that, that they've become a Christian. That they have actually received Christ and believed the biblical gospel. That they have actually been forgiven of their sins and have eternal life. And if we don't present the gospel in such a way that we include the necessary response of repentance, we might lead people into thinking they're Christians when they're not. They may have a vague sense that Jesus is necessary to help them with their problems, and often those problems are defined by them, but they haven't really understood the problem of their sin, the penalty of God's just wrath, and the need for a Savior and a substitute. When Jesus issued the Great Commission, he did not tell his followers to go into all the world and ask people to raise their hands and fill out decision cards. He commanded them to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything that he commanded. So we're called to an intensive and sustained investment in the lives of one another so that every aspect of our lives is supernaturally reoriented and turned to God. So practically, we ought to praise God that he sends people after us too, like Zechariah, when we're in need of returning. I thank the Lord when he sends a brother or sister to confront you. Don't despise those who call you to return and repent. And rather discern God's gracious invitation through them. Husbands and wives, cultivate a culture of repentance in your marriage. Be quick to confess your sin. Be quick to repent. Be quick to forgive. How many marriages could be healed if both spouses repented of 100% of their sins? Parents, model repentance. If you sin against your kids, repent. Show what it means to humble yourself, confess your sin, and ask for forgiveness. Model the Lord's grace to your children. Are your children terrified of coming to you when they've disobeyed? Or do they know that if they turn to you in repentance, that you will turn to them in love and mercy? The first matter of repentance is grasping the Lord's message. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord, and the Lord will turn to you. Now you may be thinking, okay, I grasped the message. I need to repent and return to the Lord. But why should I repent? So we need to grasp the motives of repentance. The Lord gives two massive motives in our text. The first is... Escape God's fury. Verse 2. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? So God is extremely angry with the parents whom he exiled. And if you ask, why is he so angry? Here's why. The Lord called them to repent again and again through the earlier prophets. He sent judgments to discipline them. He allowed famines, withheld rain, struck them with pestilences, sent plagues like the ones he sent in Egypt, killed their young men through foreign armies, and overthrew them like he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, like an unfaithful wife, Israel turned away from the Lord who loved them and turned to idolatry 
and injustice. Nothing worked to penetrate the cold hearts of those sinners. And so the Lord brought the covenant curses upon them and he deported them. He destroyed their temple and he exiled them to Babylon. And friends, if that was how the Lord treated his covenant people, how much worse will be the eternal exile? How much greater will be the Lord's final fury? The Lord will be extremely angry with you if you don't repent. His words and statutes will overtake you. And if you think that's harsh, consider the words of the children in verse 6. So the people repented and said, As the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. They acknowledged that they received what they deserved. See, God's anger, it issues out of his holiness. God is perfectly holy. He cannot abide sin. And so the objects of his wrath are those who oppose him, those who travel the path of wickedness. And because God is righteous, his anger is just. It's never capricious or arbitrary, but always legitimate and deserved. You see, the Lord is a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. Imagine if your son came to you and said, I don't want you to be my dad anymore. I've turned to a new dad who will let me do what I want. You'd be angry and grieved, and you would do everything to call your son back to you. See, the Lord is also a merciful and gracious God, patient, slow to anger. He gives us a way of escape. Jesus took God's righteous fury upon himself. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And that's the other motive in our text, isn't it? To enjoy God's favor. Right? Verse 3, return to me and I will return to you. Do you see it? Return to me. Come back to me. Yes, return to my law, return to my statutes, return to my words. But most of all, return to me. Of course, repentance involves turning away from sinful behavior. But the Lord fundamentally wants to restore his relationship with his people. He wants us to turn from false gods, false lovers, false pathways to joy, and turn to him and be saved. And so our greatest motivation to repent is not damnation or duty, but it's delight. Do you turn to God because you want the benefits he offers or because he's your treasure? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you love the Lord? Test yourself. Do you want to turn to God because you like what he has to offer you? He'll get me out of hell, give me eternal life in a perfect world, give me purpose and meaning in this life, all good things, all true benefits. But do you want those things while enjoying God himself is an afterthought? So when I say enjoy God's favor, don't mishear me. We cannot receive God's gifts but reject the giver. The supreme favor is God's gift of himself. And note the promise if we repent. I will return to you. Repentance is a, is a gift of God that comes to us through the proclamation of the gospel. 2 Timothy 2.24 The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, 
able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So whatever repentance is, ultimately, like with every aspect of our salvation, it's a gift of God. It's not something that we can do in our own wisdom, that we can work up in our own strength, our own holiness. This is something that God must do in our lives. And this guards us from thinking that repentance is something I must do to earn God's favor, to earn salvation. This is why some Christians, I think, are uncomfortable with making repentance a requirement for salvation. Because they're worried that if we introduce this as a requirement, we're introducing some kind of work, something that I must do, something that I must offer to God that kind of commends myself to Him so that He must save me. But in fact, repentance is a gift from God that He gives to us. And that's why I said, enjoy, not earn. Repentance doesn't merit God's favor. Only Jesus does that. But repentance places us on the pathway to enjoy God's favor. And so the second matter of repentance is grasping the Lord's motives. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord and he will turn to you. You'll escape God's fury and you'll enjoy God's favor now and forever. Okay, so I know that I need to repent. And why I should repent. How do I do it? We need to grasp the manner of repentance. The Lord gives us this wonderful image of turning. Repentance is not so much a change of direction as it is a change of loyalty. It's turning from loyalty to self and sin and Satan and turning to loyalty to the sovereign and all-satisfying Savior. And so let's reflect on the nature of that turn. Repentance is a full turn. We must turn from all sin. Verse 4, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds, your, your inclinations and your actual actions. There's no part of our lives that we hold back. We must not be like the man who wouldn't follow Christ because he wanted to turn back home and finish his business. We cannot say, God, I will give you everything, but my finances, that's my money. You can't touch that. Lord, I submit my life to you, but what I do in my room, in my own bedroom, is something that's none of your business. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God, but that whole business of gathering with your people every Lord's Day, I'm not willing to give up my weekend sports. The Lord demands our complete allegiance. Right? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. It's a full turn. It's a fervent turn. We must turn from the heart. Repentance involves our minds, our affections, and our wills. And here I was helped by one of my former pastors, John Kimball. Three R's. It involves responsibility. We must take responsibility for what we've done wrong. We must agree with God about our sin. You see that in verse 6. As the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. You know, it's easy for us to denounce sin in the abstract, to denounce the sins of other people, and yet not be penitent regarding our own sin. We must understand certain things to be true about our sin. First, that we have it, 
And second, that there is a manifold evil that characterizes our sin. You know, an old confession of faith speaks of being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness. I love that wording. It has the right tone to it. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David says there, I'm no longer trying to cover my sin. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm taking responsibility for it. You know, I think a lot of times before we're converted, we may not think we're consciously doing this, but in reality we are. We're trying to cover our sin. To not acknowledge it, to, see, to not see it for what it really is. And what it is, is evil. So when we set ourselves up against the perspective of God's word, we need to realize we take our sins so lightly. I think this is true for us even as Christians. I think this is, we only grasp in some small measure the magnitude of our offense against God. For failing to love him for who he is, to trust him for his promises, to depend on him for our needs. Beyond that, we actively actually oppose and disobey his commands for our life. We dishonor him at times in the way that we live. Think about this. Our sin is so wicked that an eternity of conscious punishment in hell will not satisfy the wickedness of it. That's tough to grasp, isn't it? The depth of our sin. Even in this sense, our repentance in this life will be imperfect. You know, we won't fully and completely and perfectly understand and grasp the magnitude of our sin. And yet, genuine repentance requires, in some measure, that we do grasp the wickedness and the evil of our sin. And then remorse. We must have true remorse for doing wrong and for the pain and problems we've caused. We must hate our sin and what it does. It robs God of his glory, that it harms those we love, that it destroys our, us. You know, it's not enough to just have an intellectual understanding of it, just to sort of academically think about it. There needs to be a personal sorrow and brokenness over it. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who pretty clearly seemed to grasp their sin? They pretty clearly seemed to grasp what was going on in their heart. They're pretty good at talking about it and analyzing it. They can talk about things that they're loving that they shouldn't love. They can talk about ways that they're not trusting God that the way they should trust God. They can talk about where their priorities are misplaced. But then there's no genuine sorrow for it. It may even be that as you're trying to probe and help them that there's almost a pride. Hey, I know my sin. I acknowledge it. I see it for what it is. But there's not this brokenness or remorse or sorrow over it. That's a fearful place to be. You actually see your sin for what it is, but you're not sorry for it. That's where the ancestors were. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. And notice that this is different than just being sad about the consequences of our sin. You know, sin often for believer and unbeliever alike it brings misery and heartache and struggle and difficulty into our lives. And we don't like it. When I'm a passive husband and it brings relational tension with my wife, I don't like that. 
But feeling sorry and sad about the tension in my marriage is different from feeling sorrow over the fact that my passivity fails to honor God, fails to serve my wife, fails to present the picture of Jesus Christ that's intended to be portrayed in my marriage. I just want to avoid the disapproval and the strife. So if I'm caught telling a lie, caught viewing pornography, I'm confronted with my laziness, confronted with my anger, I need to not just be sad because this brings difficult circumstances into my life. I need to have a godly grief over the evil of my sin, over the offense that it is to God, over the offense that it is to those around me and the harm that it can bring. That's different from self-pity, right? There's a turning outward and recognizing how I've offended God, dishonored Him, and hurt others rather than simply turning inward in self-pity. The Bible actually talks about a worldly grief that does not lead to salvation. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So we need to examine ourselves. Am I sad? Am I sorrowful? Am I grieving in this situation because of what my sin is and the offense that it is to God? Or am I just sad about my circumstances? That will help us distinguish genuine repentance versus simple worldly sorrow. But even as we must feel this way about ourselves and about our sin in genuine repentance, we also need to say that genuine, genuine repentance doesn't just stall out there. Right? That's not our landing place. That will just lead us to despair, to hopelessness, to depression. But instead, in genuine repentance, there is a resolve to turn away from our sin and to walk before God in obedience. We resolve not to repeat the act, regardless of the situation. Repentance doesn't say, I should, or I need to, or I want to, or I ought to, or I plan to. Repentance says, I will. Like the prodigal who came to himself, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And praise God that by his grace, that it is actually possible by his spirit in the grace of the gospel to do this. If you're stalling out in that sorrow over your sin, hear this. This is the good news of the gospel, that by God's grace, you can actually turn from that sin and seek to walk in newness of life. This is what happens when we're born again. We turn away from sin and turn in obedience to God. Again, we don't do this perfectly. If we did, we'd be sinless. But we do this genuinely, and we must do this genuinely if we are to be saved. And this is our intention and our goal. But here's our problem. No amount of resolve can undo the damage we've done against God and against others. No amount of tears, apologies, law-keeping, or good works can undo the evil we've done. God himself must repair the damage. And that's why repentance is not only a full turn and a fervent turn, but it's also a faith turn. We must turn from sin and turn to Christ. Not everybody is saved from God's wrath just because Christ died for sinners. The benefits purchased by the death of Christ belong to those who repent and trust in him. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, 
Right? One side is tails. You turn tail on the rotten fruits of unbelief, and the other side is heads. You head straight for Jesus and trust in him alone for salvation. You can't have one without the other any more than you can face two ways at once or serve two masters. You won't find genuine faith without repentance, and you won't find genuine repentance without faith in Christ. And why Jesus Christ? Where is that in our text? We read the Old Testament as Christians. When the Lord says, return to me, we need to hear the words of Jesus in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When the Lord says, I will return to you, we need to hear the words of 1 John 4, 14. The Father sent the Son as the world's Savior. There is no one else God has sent. There is no one else who can be our substitute. Either we will bear God's just anger against our sin, or Christ will bear it for us. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And it's also a final turn. We must turn with no return. We cannot be like the man who told Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We must be all in for all of life. Right? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. As Luther said, the life of a Christian is one of continual repentance. And so repentance is initial and ongoing. There is a moment in time where before there was no repentance. Now there is true belief and true repentance. And at that moment, there is salvation. But as with faith, it's not just a one-time thing that you do. And then you move on. No, remember, when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said that daily they should pray for the forgiveness of their sins. Daily we need to be recognizing our sin, be broken over it, sorrowful, and turn from it. Seek forgiveness from the Lord. Part of what it means to live out the implications of the gospel day by day is that we recognize our sin daily and repent of it. We're grieved over our sin. We purpose in our will to turn away from it. And we experience the grace and forgiveness of Christ as we do so. This is an ongoing thing in the life of a Christian. And on the flip side of that, if we're confronted with our sin, and there is not a response in our hearts in an ongoing way of repentance, then we should be concerned. We shouldn't be putting our confidence in, well, I repented of my sin back then, and I was saved. But now I'm being confronted with my sin today, and I'm not responding with repentance. Well, then we ought to be deeply concerned with the reality of our repentance and our faith in Christ. And this is where, to get the full picture here, we've got to keep repentance and faith together. We don't just turn from our sin to a life of obedience to be saved. That's legalism. Our turning from sin is put together with turning to the Lord and saving faith, and trusting in Him, receiving and resting upon Him alone for salvation and eternal life. But then out of that flows a resolve to walk in obedience. There's an intention in our will to not sin anymore, to forsake it, to leave it behind, 
and lead a life of obedience to God. Another way to think about this is to say that we're not at peace with our sin. Not any of it, not even the smallest measure. We don't justify it. We don't make excuses for it. We don't take pleasure in it. Instead, we agree with God about his perspective on it. We're grieved by it, and we seek to fight against it. I love this counsel from the Scottish preacher, William Arnott. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sin. That's a great description of repentance and the Christian life. The foundation of that fight from beginning to end is our full and free acceptance through Jesus Christ alone. And that's why Arnott can say, you take part with a reconciled God. Right? This is how you start this fight. You don't clean yourself up and get about the business of being reconciled to God. No, you're reconciled to God. And that's the basis for fighting against sin. This is the repentance that leads to life and salvation. If you turn to the Lord, the Lord will turn to you. We will never finally or totally turn away from the Lord because the Lord will never turn away from us. That's the promise of the new covenant. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. And I will put fear of me in their hearts so they will never again turn away from me. So we've seen the message, the motives, and the manner of repentance. And now it's time for the moment of repentance. Look at verse 4. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, This is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But then in my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants the prophets, overtake your ancestors. Zechariah is saying, your fathers are gone. The former prophets are gone. I'm a prophet now. Will you listen to me? This is the moment of decision. This is the moment of reckoning, right? Pay attention now. Repent now. And how did they respond? Verse 6. So the people repented and said, As the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. They returned to the Lord. They didn't hedge their bets. They didn't hesitate. They heard the word of the prophet and they returned. They turned from their sin. They trusted the promise of the Lord's grace to return to them. And the rest of this book is full of wonderful visions and prophecies of how the Lord would return to his people through the Messiah. Friends, consider the example of this generation of Jews. They had a date. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, they could look back to this moment in time and say, that's when the Lord spoke to us through this prophet, and that's when we repented and returned to the Lord. Are you hearing what the Lord is saying through his prophet today? Are you paying attention? Will you return to the Lord? D.L. Moody warns, if God's today be too soon for thy repentance, thy tomorrow may be too late for God's acceptance. 
Don't put off repentance. Another day, another moment, another hour. Many are now in hell that intended to repent. Tomorrow may be our dying day. Let this be our repenting day. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now God has a mind to show mercy to the penitent. Now the Lord of armies hangs forth his white flag to receive and pardon sinners. Swear allegiance to him now. Turn from your sin now. Turn to the Lord now. And he will turn to you right now. Hear this exhortation from Hebrews 2. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, see how the Lord treated his own people. Every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment. They got away with nothing. These words are especially for you. If God hates sin enough to punish even his own people, what do you think will happen to you? If God allowed his chosen people Israel, the elect nation of his own love and purpose, to fall to the sword, to be dragged off in chains, the city and its temple reduced to ruin, what will be your fate if you continue to rebel? You who have no such claim upon his affection. The lesson is clear. You must repent at once. Lay down your rebellion. Turn from your evil ways and from your deeds. Turn from that sin and turn to this God of grace who offers you salvation through the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ. If you will repent and turn to him in faith, your sins will be forgiven on the spot and you will have everlasting life. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian, but you've been running from God. You've wandered off the path of following Jesus. You've turned again to your own way. You've not put God first. Remember the history lesson of the ancestors. Your sin will not bring blessing but ruin. However sweet its deceptive song rings in your ears. If you persist in sin, you will at the least bring upon yourself God's chastisement. And at the worst, you will prove that you have really not believed at all. Ultimately to reap the destruction that you're now sowing with the seeds of sin. But God calls you today to come back to him. The porch light is always on at the Father's house, ready to welcome you back. He will restore you. He will renew you. He will embrace you once again in his loving arms. In fact, this invitation from God speaks grace to every Christian every day, backslidden or not. And the ups and downs of our walk with Christ, how wonderful to see God's open arms encouraging continual repentance and trust. Maybe you're a believer, but you're struggling to persevere and keep turning to the Lord. The war against sin is long and hard. You feel the weight of your own wickedness. You're weary of the battle. Keep returning to the fountain. John Murray counsels, Christ's blood is the labor of initial cleansing, but it is also the fountain to which the believer must continuously repair. You will never regret coming to him one more time. Keep returning to the Lord. He will return to you and strengthen you to the end. And I know this because the Lord always keeps his promises. He promised to return to his people. 
And he did that by coming to us in his son. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, took on our humanity. All his ways were perfect. All his deeds were righteous. He never rebelled, never turned astray. He perfectly obeyed his father. And he even willingly laid down his life on the cross as a perfect sacrifice to bear God's righteous wrath against our sin, turning it away forever. And God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So wherever you are today, the Lord Jesus calls you, return to me and I will return to you. Don't turn away from him. There is no real favor, no true salvation, no everlasting life, no certain hope apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The pardon and peace of God is through this man. The forgiveness and favor of God, the fullness of grace and life is through this man. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Turn to him, trusting in his shed blood and perfect righteousness is all you need to be right in God's sight. And one day the Lord Jesus will return again, and he will judge the living and the dead. All who do not turn from their sin and trust in him will perish. The Lord Jesus will turn against them in his anger forever. But everyone who turns to Christ now in penitent faith, they will be saved. God will turn to us in mercy, turn his face to us. All things will turn to our good, both mercies and sufferings, and we will enjoy him forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this gift given to us by your Spirit in the Gospel. That as we hear this call to repentance, to see our sin for what it is, to feel the reality of its wickedness, to be sorrowful for it, and then to turn from it and seek to live in obedience to you, we thank you that by your grace you cause us to be born again so that this might be a reality in our lives. Thank you that by the blood of Jesus Christ and by his righteous life we can confidently in an ongoing way, fight this battle against our sin. So please, Lord, day by day, restore us to repentance. Renew us again. If there is, even here this morning, sin in our lives, please guard us from making peace with our sin. But let us come to you by the blood of Christ and fight against our sin with you, our reconciled God. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not made that initial turn of repentance. Would you bring them now to yourself? Call them home. Return to them for your glory and for their everlasting joy. In Jesus' name, amen.